In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm talking about why airliners don't carry parachutes for passengers. Afterwards, we're going to look at who owns the airport that you're flying through, how they make money, and how it affects you as a traveler. Welcome to episode 14 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel. As usual, I'm going to start off by answering air travel questions, and then for the main segment, I'm going to explore airport ownership, money making, and what it means for you as a passenger. Why don't airlines carry parachutes for passengers? Given that fighter pilots and some small planes have parachutes, we might wonder why we don't get them on airliners. There's a number of reasons why airlines don't have parachutes for passengers. For starters, parachutes are heavy and expensive. Parachuting equipment for one person weighs around 40 pounds and it can cost from $5,000 to $10,000. If parachutes are taking up space and weight on a plane, it will require more fuel and can carry less passengers and cargo. In the end, passengers would be paying for these differences. But it's about much more than cost. Jumping out of an airliner is very hard. It's very different from skydiving. Skydiving happens under planned and controlled circumstances, while accidents from airliners tend to come without warning. Planes fly at very high altitudes, usually over 30,000 feet, and at those heights, the temperature is less than 30 degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius, with wind chill on top of that. Plus, the pressure changes and other environmental conditions up there would cause people to lose consciousness due to a lack of oxygen. While your airliners will be flying at over 30,000 feet most of the time, skydiving usually happens below 15,000 feet, where conditions are generally survivable for humans without any special equipment. In fact, when flying above 15,000 feet, skydivers are generally required to carry supplemental oxygen. The other thing is that airliners fly very fast. Airline jets fly at 400 to 600 miles per hour, while skydiving aircraft fly at around 80 to 100 miles per hour when they have novice skydivers jumping. That's 800 to 900 kilometers per hour for airliners compared to 130 to 160 kilometers per hour for skydiving. Skydiving requires training or jumping with someone. You don't skydive by yourself when you do it the first time for a bunch of obvious reasons. In order for airliners to have parachutes, passengers would have to be trained on how to use them, and that would be something that's more complicated than anything that's currently in those safety demonstrations, and we already know how much people pay attention during those. So even if airlines had parachutes, there's a decent chance that people wouldn't be able to survive the jump. Perhaps most importantly though, there isn't really any way to jump from airliners. Skydiving happens from unpressurized planes with specially modified doors, but as I discussed in episode 10, you can't open the door in flight on a pressurized airliner. It's just physically impossible. Now, even if we modified aircraft and somehow managed to successfully train all passengers on how to use a parachute, you would still need a scenario in which the plane is able to fly at a low altitude at a low enough speed for enough time for people to jump safely. There are very few, if any, accidents where the circumstances meet that description. 
The vast majority of accidents happen during takeoff and landing, and the few terrifying fatal accidents that tend to happen during cruise often involve the plane just falling out of the sky very quickly. In an accident, the chances of everyone surviving safely are probably higher if things are left in the capable hands of our pilots as opposed to having everyone bail out of the plane. There are very few, if any, situations out there where the circumstances have made it possible to jump out and made it safer to take the risk of jumping as opposed to trying to land the plane. There is such thing as whole plane parachutes though, and that's exactly what it sounds like, a giant parachute for the entire plane. They exist for smaller aircraft and have been successfully used in some incidents. There is ongoing research and development associated with larger aircraft, so that may be something to watch for down the line. Did you know that UPS once operated passenger flights? Yes, the United Parcel Service experimented with running a passenger operations for a few years. In the 1990s, the global package delivery company realized that a good number of its planes were sitting around empty and unused during weekends. The idea was to convert five Boeing 727 cargo jets into passenger jets on Friday and then reconfigure them back into cargo jets by Monday. They would do this every week. They installed permanent lavatories at the back of the plane, and the planes already had windows since they were former passenger jets. The airlines aimed to have the conversion done within four hours, using a pretty cool system where large pallets of seats could be loaded and unloaded through the big cargo door in a modular fashion. Instead of competing with the big airlines out there, they focused on charter flights, which means doing business with travel agencies or other groups that needed an entire plane for a special purpose. There were some challenges with this operation though, like how all the planes weren't the exact same size, which caused problems with the modular reconfiguration each week, and the fact that the constant conversion of the aircraft interiors was causing a lot of wear and tear. Although the service started in 1997, it was shut down a few years later by 2001, when UPS basically decided that it wasn't worth the extra bit of money. As you walk through the check-in area or stand in line for a coffee after security, there's no need for you to know who owns or runs the airport. In fact, there might not be much reason for you to care. However, who owns and runs an airport can greatly affect the quality of your experience. It can help explain why some airports have low ceilings and drop decor, while others have beautiful plazas and green spaces. If you fly often through the United States, you're probably used to tired and unappealing airport terminals. Security lines are long, food options are boring and limited, and the whole place just isn't somewhere where you want to spend a whole lot of your time. Contrast that with airports like Hong Kong's, which features a movie theater and a virtual golf course, and at Qatar's international airport, you can go for a swim. Singapore Changi is probably home to what is perhaps the world's most exceptional airport experience, and I talked a little bit about this in a previous episode. Not only does Singapore Changi have a wide array of shopping and dining options, breathtaking architecture, and flight connections around the globe, it has a lot of really cool amenities, ranging from a butterfly garden, to a four-story slide, to a rooftop swimming pool, and much more. Like Singapore, New York is another one of the world's global economic hubs. Tens of millions of passengers pass through its three major airports each year. 
That being said, you'll be hard-pressed to find reviews of its airports on par with those of Singapore Changi. New York's LaGuardia Airport is widely considered to be the worst airport in the U.S., and has developed a reputation among frequent flyers as a crowded, crumbling airport with constant delays. It's so bad that Joe Biden once said that if you blindfolded someone and took them to LaGuardia, they would think that you were in a third world country. To be fair though, LaGuardia's new Terminal B has received widespread positive reviews, but I think it'll take a lot to change the airport's overall reputation. Newark Airport is not much better. It also consistently ranks as one of the country's worst airports. Its dated infrastructure and limited food options just don't keep passengers happy. New York's John F. Kennedy or JFK Airport is a bit better, but with long lines and nearly 20% of its flights being delayed, people aren't really raving about its efficiency or comfort like they would about the airports in Tokyo or Vancouver. To help explain how airports can be run so differently, let's take a look at who owns and runs airports. There's a strong argument out there for airports to be publicly owned. Like bridges and highways, they're strategic transportation assets for a government. Their importance to a country or a region's economy means that governments are likely to want to retain control over these key pieces of infrastructure. Putting these assets in private hands can be risky and sometimes politically unpopular. Singapore Changi and all three of New York's major airports are government-owned. But just because they're owned by the government doesn't mean they're run by the government, nor does it mean that they're owned in the same way. New York's airports are run by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, a joint agency formed by the states of New York and New Jersey to oversee regional infrastructure like bridges, marine ports, and of course, the airports. If you aren't familiar with how things are in the US, let me point out a simple fact. Governments aren't exactly beacons of exceptional customer service, and the same sentiment exists in many parts of the world. Even if they try to adopt private sector, client, or customer-based tactics, it can be hard for governments to get really good at creating customer experiences like private companies can. Airports in the U.S. are generally owned and operated by local governments. This means that they're run like train stations and are generally considered to be public assets that aren't allowed to make a profit. While it might be a good thing that any money they do make has to be reinvested in the facility, the problem is they don't really bring in enough revenue to make the necessary improvements. While airports around the world are bringing in private investment, modifying their user fees, the governments that run the airports in the US are either unwilling or unable to use these options. As an example, airports in the United States charge a passenger facility charge, which is supposed to go towards airport upkeep. It's federally legislated and is currently capped at $4.50. It's unsurprising that there's a slew of cash-strapped airports across the country. For a country that loves capitalism, the U.S. is surprisingly reluctant to turn their airports into profit-driven entities. In Singapore, even though the airport is owned by the government, it created a separate legal entity known as Changi Airport Group. This entity continues to be owned by the Ministry of Finance, but it's not really a government department, and it's able to run itself and the airport using private sector approaches as if it was running a business. This type of corporatization model is common around the world. Under the management of Changi Airport Group, Singapore Changi brings in millions of dollars of profits every year, all while running a dazzling and efficient airport. It isn't bound by the same constraints facing local governments in the U.S., and it's clearly made some worthwhile commercial decisions. 
We'll be back after a quick break. Join pilot and adventurer Fernando Pino as he takes you on journeys to discover exciting destinations across the UK and Europe. You'll fly with him to hidden gems and experience local culture, from bustling streets to serene hideaways and the best places to eat, sleep and play. Travel Plans is more than a podcast. It's your ticket to exploring the world and its history with a friend. In this episode, we are flying to discover a beachside paradise perfect for the whole family. Discover golden sands, activities galore and even free childcare so you get your own break too. <sighs> Why am I still here? Airports don't have to be owned by governments though. Europe is a leader in bringing private ownership into airports. Not only is London's Heathrow Airport one of the world's busiest airports, but it's also the largest fully privatized airport in the world. If you've ever been to Heathrow or some other major European airports, you may have noticed that the terminals look like shopping malls that also happen to have boarding gates. The prices on many merchandise and food items are in line with what you can find on the street. There's endless shopping and dining options. Heathrow Airport is the king of generating what is known as non-aeronautical revenue. At this point, we have to take a moment to talk about how airports make money. Airlines get money for buying planes and expanding their operations through the money that you pay them when you buy a ticket. You don't have to make a separate payment to an airport every time you use it though. So how do they make money? Running an airport is clearly an expensive, capital-heavy operation. And there's two main types of airport revenue: aeronautical revenue and non-aeronautical revenue. Aeronautical revenue refers to money coming from things like landing fees and terminal charges. This money is directly related to an airport's main purpose. Airlines get charged fees when they use an airport, usually through some sort of combination of landing fees, departure fees, and terminal and gate fees. These fees are generally based on the number of passengers or the size of the aircraft or some combination of the two. Part of the taxes and fees that make up the price you pay for your flight goes towards covering these costs. Let's take a look at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport as an example. The airport has a number of fees for aircraft. Landing and takeoff charges are determined according to an aircraft's size, noise category, and arrival and departure times. Fees also depend on whether an aircraft uses a gate with a jet bridge or parks at a stand where passengers have to disembark via air stairs and then walk or be bussed to the terminal. There are additional fees related to passenger service, security, and aircraft parking. A Boeing 777 jumbo jet carrying a few hundred passengers arriving during the evening and then departing a few hours later at nighttime would be charged approximately 11,350 euros or 12,700 US dollars for its visit. And we're assuming here that it parks at a gate with a jet bridge and that half its passengers are originating from Amsterdam while the other half are connecting. On the other hand, we can look at an ATR 72 turboprop plane carrying 70 passengers. Once again, we're assuming that it arrives in the evening, departs late at night, and that half the passengers are originating while the other half are connecting. However, let's say that the smaller plane parks at a gate where passengers have to disembark from the plane via the stairs and then walk to the terminal. In this scenario, the ATR 72 would be charged approximately 1,740 euros or about 2,000 US dollars for its visit. Neither of these flights would get charged any parking fees since their stays at the airport are relatively short. Now, non-aeronautical revenues come from sources like retail and parking. Retail and dining outlets are big revenue generators for airports. 
Not only do they pay rent, but airports sometimes take a cut of each sale made within its terminals. Also, have you ever wondered why parking is so expensive at airports? This is because parking is also very lucrative for airports, particularly in North America. If an airport is tight on cash, an easy way to make a bit of extra money is to raise those parking fees. The money-making potential of airport parking is also why some airports sometimes look like they're opposed to mass transit projects that could benefit their passengers. In a similar way, taxis and ride-sharing services generally also bring airports a bit of revenue through licensing fees or fees charged on individual rides. Airports can also make money from collecting rent on property on the airport grounds. Sometimes property is leased to airlines to build office buildings or hangars, while in other cases, airports can rent land out for non-aviation purposes such as hotels. Airports around the world have gotten creative with the ways on how they can generate non-aeronautical revenue. The Vancouver Airport Authority, which manages Vancouver International Airport, has been super successful in creating different non-aeronautical revenue streams. It has one of the highest percentages of non-aeronautical revenue in North America. In addition to making efficient use of its terminal space to host as many tenants as possible, it's been introducing new revenue sources, like a meeting room that can be rented to tenants. Almost half of the airport's revenue is derived from non-aeronautical sources, and this appears largely to be the result of the airport getting creative in what it's investing in. For example, the airport authority holds a 50% stake in the MacArthur Glen Designer Outlet Center, a large outlet mall located adjacent to the airport. Innovative Travel Solutions is an independent business unit within the airport authority, and it develops and sells a line of border kiosks, which are used across airports in Canada, the US, and the Caribbean. Furthermore, up until 2015, the airport authority owned a 50% equity stake in Vantage Airport Group, which was originally a subsidiary of the airport authority. And what this company did was invested and provide airport management services for numerous airports in Canada and abroad. The Vancouver Airport Authority is a really good example of how airports can become engaged in really different and unique commercial revenue areas. It's invested in a wide portfolio of revenue streams and shows how airport authorities can get creative and diverse in ways to generate revenues. Now, let's circle back to how Heathrow Airport has become a world leader in generating non-aeronautical revenue. Following its privatization, its parent company increased non-aeronautical revenue by 22% in 15 years. In the same period of time, its profit on rent and retail activities grew by more than 350%. After privatization, its owner BAA put a focus on commercial income, purchasing over 250 duty-free outlets at other airports and expanding its business portfolio. It began managing shopping facilities and hospitals, developing a hotel chain, and like the Vancouver Airport Authority, has gotten into the business of managing other airports in other jurisdictions. You might be thinking that this type of profit-maximizing behavior that's driven to maximize shareholder value in a private company would lead to a neglect of passenger service improvements. If an airport can get more revenue from investing in shopping space rather than improving runway operations, could that work against the interest of passengers? Well, perhaps, but a focus on revenue also comes with a strong incentive to improve the overall experience of passengers. If an airport makes investments to reduce its check-in times or its security wait times, passengers can spend more time browsing the stores. 
And if an airport can improve its connections experience and reduce the amount of time passengers have to be spending at airline desks or on security lines, then connecting passengers have more time to dine at its restaurants. In many parts of the world, and especially Europe, there's also competition between airports due to the population density and proximity of cities. If an airport is constantly congested and flights are frequently delayed, airlines and passengers might turn elsewhere. But airport competition isn't just limited to Europe. Competition can also arise from the geographic location of airports. Major hub airports like Dubai International Airport rely heavily on connecting passengers. More than half of passengers flying in and out of the airport are only using it as a transit point because of its strategic location between Europe and Asia, as well as between Africa and Asia. Similarly, the airport's main airline, Emirates, has a business model that's heavily focused on connecting traffic. Nearby though, Doha Airport and Qatar Airways have adopted the same model. These airports and airlines compete for connecting traffic, and so it's in their interest to ensure that passengers have a good experience when transiting through these airports. Similarly, airports in Asian cities like Tokyo and Hong Kong compete for passengers connecting throughout Asia. Airports in the U.S. aren't really subject to this level of global competition. Much of the passenger volume at American airports are originating or finishing their journeys in the U.S. There are some opportunities for airports in the U.S. to compete, though. Passengers traveling from Europe to South America have the option to connect through airports in Canada, the U.S., or Central America. Those traveling from Europe to Australia will generally fly eastbound through airports like Dubai or Hong Kong that are clean, modern, and efficient. The flying time would be roughly the same if they flew westbound and connected through the U.S., but with the state of American airports, I can't really blame them for choosing other options. All this doesn't mean that airports have to be privatized or bringing big profits for shareholders or for governments. What they do need to do, though, is bring in enough revenue to invest in capital projects and improvements that will improve safety, efficiency, and the passenger experience. In the U.S., this means that airports can't be treated the same way as bus terminals anymore. There are signs of hope. LaGuardia's new Terminal B, which I've mentioned previously, has been praised as a significant improvement from the airport's older infrastructure. Its modern appearance, high ceilings, and an array of shopping options and dining options might be the start of a new direction for the airport. Looking at the pictures and videos that have come out of it, it's looking good. The terminal was built as a private-public partnership, which brought together the Port Authority and a consortium of private partners. Near Seattle, Payne Field has been known for being the home to Boeing's Everett Widebody Manufacturing Plant. In 2019, Alaska Airlines and United Airlines began service to the airport, operating out of what might be America's most beautiful airport terminal. The private terminal operator has a lease with the government that allowed it to build and run the terminal. The small two-gate terminal epitomizes modern Northwest charm. High ceilings and wood panels can be found throughout the terminal space, while large windows bring natural light into the building. The waiting area honestly looks more like a large airline lounge, with lounge chairs, two fireplaces, and display cases with historical aviation memorabilia. Contrast this with other small airports across the country. Run by city or county governments, they often charge low fees to attract airlines and lack the funds to make big infrastructure improvements or passenger improvements. Now, I don't want to sound like an advocate for privatization. There's challenges and drawbacks associated with private-public partnerships, but the American experience has shown that complete public ownership and operation hasn't really been working, and that private involvement can bring big improvements for passengers. 
The issue isn't a black and white one between private companies and governments. In Canada, your major airports are owned by the government, but operated by not-for-profit airport authorities that hold long-term leases. This model has brought us experiences like the one you'll find at Vancouver International Airport, where warm carpeting and local art is prominent throughout the terminals, and arriving international passengers are greeted by a two-story waterfall. The airport has consistently won awards for being the best in North America. An airport's ownership and operational structure can have a big impact on how the passenger experience looks. Passengers around the world want the same things, right? Low wait times, efficient flight connections, and enjoyable things to do while they wait for their flights. Some airports have mastered the art of running a successful airport, with sky-high passenger reviews and enviable revenue flows. Others, like many in the US, still have a long way to go. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. Please take a minute and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Flying Smarter and on Twitter at Flying underscore Smarter. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.